You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. passage for this morning comes from Daniel 9, verses 1 through 23. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books a number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, The great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, 
the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing on this rainy day? We are in the book of Daniel, and I'm excited to keep on preaching through this series. As you know, the last several weeks we've been going through these prophetic, cryptic, strange portions of the book of Daniel. We get a little break from that today. We get some normal stuff today. And I'm really excited about this sermon. Maybe it's just personal for me because it has much to do with what the Lord's even teaching me and pressing on me these days of the importance of something. And what is that something? What is this whole passage, this whole sermon, what's the point of today? Today is about the one thing that we need most, but neglect most, prayer. We need it desperately, yet it's the last thing we get to. And look, we are no different than Daniel. He is in exile. He's been in exile since he was 15 years old, and at this point, at this uh, stage in the book of Daniel, he's probably in his 80s. He's been in exile his entire adult life. And what's he doing here? He's looking forward to the release from exile. He's looking forward to the time when that will be lifted and a great exodus will be performed. We are no different. We are exiles. This is not our home. We are citizens of a kingdom that is to come. And we also, just like Daniel, look forward to a time where this exile will come to an end and we will experience a great final exodus and be released and be liberated. So today is about the prayer of an exile. It's a model prayer for us. What Daniel does here, I mean, he's prayed a lot in his life. He documents this one prayer specifically. Why would he do that? It must be a model for those of us who are exiles like him. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to examine it as the prayer of an exile and learn from it. Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to be with us and teach us. Father, our great Father who loves us, we ask and pray and believe that you will meet us here now, that you will teach us by your written word, that you will take your truth, the reality of how things are, the reality of how desperately we need you, the reality of how gracious and merciful you are, the reality of how much you love us. We pray and believe that you will press these things down into us so that we are persuaded that they are true. God, we are exiles, strangers and aliens and sojourners right now. This is not our home. God, I pray that you would cause us to be uncomfortable even now and not settle for sin, not be unfaithful, not give in to passivity. But God, I pray that you would catch a hold of our mind's attention, our heart's affection, and turn us towards you and make us passionate about the things you're passionate about. God, I pray that you'd make us faithful, remarkable diligent exiles. And so, Father, what we need to do is be a people of prayer. God, give us a passion for prayer. Help us to see its necessity, how essential it is if we are going to thrive here as exiles. Please, Father, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The prayer of an exile is first and foremost word-inspired 
word shape. Scripture infused, scripture motivated. Let's go ahead and see that uh, as we dig into this chapter. So you'll notice in verses one and two, I'm going to get there here in a moment, but Daniel mentions that he picked up the books and is reading in the book of Jeremiah that this exile that he's in right now is coming to a close. You remember that? He mentions the prophet Jeremiah. I just want to stop there for a moment and and think. That's really interesting, isn't it? Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, who's back in Judah, is living at the same time as Daniel in Babylon. They are contemporaries. They're alive at the same time. And Jeremiah, as you know, Judah's been, you know, invaded, the, the, the temple's been demolished, and Jeremiah is there in, you know, that place where bricks are coming down, where everything's way laced. Jeremiah is there, sticking it out, serving God's people faithfully until he eventually gets deported to Egypt. But these guys, Daniel and Jeremiah, are contemporaries, alive at the same time. And you'll notice he says that the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, think about that. That means that Daniel thinks that Jeremiah's writings are scripture. That he thinks that Jeremiah's writings are authoritative, inspired, infallible, yet they're alive at the same time. And what Daniel's reading is, is fresh. The ink is fresh, yet he considers it to be God's word. And that's interesting because we come across skeptics or family and friends who say, yeah, people in the old times and as the Bible was being formulated, its canon was being formed, that happened way later on. It was by the people in power. It was way after Jesus. There was no agreement on any of these books. It's just a big mess. No one knows for sure what's really in the Bible. That's not true, actually. See, God's people had this hyper-consciousness, this hyper-awareness of what was Scripture, what was authoritative, what was canon, and what was not. Even here, Daniel recognizes his counterpart, Jeremiah, to be the word of the Lord. And so, just so you know, uh, what we have in our Bibles, and this is maybe a longer conversation for a longer time, but I just want to deposit this in your ears right now. What we have in our Bibles, we can be confident that's canon because there is this hyper-awareness throughout history of God's people about what is actually true Scripture and what is not true Scripture. So he considers Jeremiah to be the word of the Lord. And what does he read? Look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 2, actually, it says this. I, Daniel, perceived in the books. Okay, so he's reading the whole Testament. In the books, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what Daniel's saying here is he has connected the dots across the Bible. He's reading his Old Testament, and he's realizing, he's coming to the conclusion that at the end of 70 years, an exile, this exile will be lifted. It will be, they will be liberated. They'll be sent back to their homeland in Judah. And my question is, how does Daniel gather that? Like, where is that in the Bible? How does he make sense of, of all of these things? Let me walk you through what Daniel is reading. Let me walk you through this. In Leviticus, it says this, Leviticus 26, 33 to 35, uh, Moses uh, says this, or God through Moses says this, I will scatter you among the nations. It's like God knows that his people are not going to be faithful. He's telling them, look, it's not if, it's when. So when you're disobedient and when you experience the consequences of your disobedience, I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths 
as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So here God, long ago through the prophet Moses, is saying that there will be an exile and it will last the duration of the Sabbaths that you neglected. Remember, every seven years in the, in the Israelite calendar, they were to rest for an entire year, not work the land, give the land rest every seventh year. It was an act of trust. They would, they would do that and say, we believe that God will provide. We don't need to perform. We don't need to do anything. We believe that God is going to be faithful to us because he is gracious and merciful. So apparently, for a number of years, Israel neglected that. They worked the land instead of let it rest every seventh year. They did it for decades. They did it for decades. And look what uh, Jeremiah says based off this reality. You know, Leviticus says you'll be exiled for the number of Sabbaths that you neglected. Here's what Jeremiah says later on. This is what Daniel's reading and making sense of. Jeremiah 25 says this, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And later on in Jeremiah 29, it says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. So what Daniel's recognizing is that the number of Sabbaths that the people of Israel neglected must be seven, seven Sabbaths in a row. Span over the course of seven Sabbaths, which of course is 70 years. That's how long the land needed to rest. So he's saying, okay, at the end of 70 years, that's how long it's going to take for the land to have its rest, we'll be sent back. That's what the prophet Jeremiah has said. This is confirmed. If you want like a confirmation of this entire picture, 2 Chronicles 36. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It kind of wraps up all of Israel's story. And it says this in 2 Chronicles 36. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Listen, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So what we see here is Daniel is connecting the dots between Leviticus and Jeremiah and seeing that 70 years is the required amount of time for the land to rest. Thus, the exile will last 70 years. And therefore, 70 years is about up. It's been about 70 years where they've been in exile. Plus, it says what else? That the king of Babylon will be punished. And that's how you also know that this exile is coming to a close. Well, that's just what happened. Babylon has just fallen to Persia. And so Daniel knows. He recognizes based upon his reading of scripture that the time is close. The time is very close. And so what does he do next? You would think like given this realization, like we're going home soon. It's the end soon. You would think he'd just run out into the streets and start uh, parading and start telling people, start gathering people and say, hey, it's time to go back home soon. That's what you'd think would happen. But what instead does he do in verses three and four? Look, it says, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession. Instead of running into the streets and gathering everybody up, he is still, he pauses his life, and he prays. Now, why would Daniel do that? Why would he do that, of all things? And again, 
It's because this is what his scripture, his Old Testament has told him to do. Look at Leviticus 26. That same passage I read before, it says this also in that same passage. At the end of the 70 years, at the end of that time of exile, God tells his people this, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. And in Deuteronomy 4, okay, another passage, Moses straight up tells the people of Israel, you will go into exile because you are not that great, you're pretty wicked, but he tells them what to do next after they experience exile in chapter 4, Deuteronomy 4, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, you'll be left in number among the few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, listen, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And so what, what's, what's Daniel seeing as he's reading his Bible? That the way out of exile at the end of those 70 years is to turn to the Lord, confess their sins, seek after him with all their hearts, and he will restore them to the land. So Daniel is simply doing what his Bible is telling him to do, which is to pray in a certain kind of way. And now I want to clarify something that's really important here. In the Old Covenant, like the Old Testament, God had this covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, and we often say a phrase that God's love is unconditional, which is true. God is committed to us and will never abandon us, but we have to realize that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God had a conditional covenant with Israel. He's never going to leave them or forsake them, but their residence and security in the promised land was dependent upon their faithfulness to the law whether or not they would obey God. If they obeyed God, they would stay and reside. If they disobeyed God and did not keep trust relationship with him, they would experience punishment and exile. And this, and this is really important, this is true for all of God's sons in the Old Testament. Adam is called God's son. He is given a covenant relationship where he has to have trust with God. But what does he do? He breaks that trust, Right? He becomes his own moral authority, and what happens to him because of his disobedience? He is exiled out of the garden presence of God. He experiences alienation. Israel, same thing happens. They are exiled and alienated from the land, from God's presence. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. The same thing is said of the kings of Israel who represent the nation of Israel. Their obedience or their disobedience is going to have a direct effect upon the people's blessings or the people's curses underneath God's law. So this is a narrative. This is a, a thread throughout the whole entire Bible that the obedience or disobedience of God's people underneath his covenant in the Old Testament is going to directly result in blessings or curses for them. And so Daniel realizes we've, we've um, fairly acquired these curses. We have deserved to be exported out of the land because we broke trust with God, but he is telling us to pray 
to pray in a certain way according to the Scripture, so that at the end of that time of exile, we might be restored. And so that's what he does. He takes up for his people. He prays and confesses. So look, these last several weeks, we've been talking about learning about this great battle between good and evil that's been raging for all of time and will continue raging until Jesus returns. It's this reality behind the reality that we don't always have eyes to see, don't always have a concept for, but it's true. There's a great battle raging and we are caught up in it. We're in it. We are exiles and we are caught up in this great battle between good and evil. And so listen, like I said before, we are in no different a position than Daniel. He is an exile. And the battle he is caught up in between good and evil is the same battle that we're caught up in. And listen, the difference between us just surviving and eking by and just doing okay as exiles versus us thriving and being remarkable and attractive in our living and faithful no matter what, that difference is going to hinge on prayer. It's going to hinge on our prayer life. And here's the good news. We are not left to our own imagination, to our own creativity, and our own attention span to pray. What are we given to make our prayer life powerful, meaningful? What are we given to make our prayer life actually cause us to persevere and thrive in our exile? We're given God's word. We should be praying based upon what we see in God's word. His scripture should shape our prayers, inspire our prayers, saturate our prayers, give us the language of our prayer. See, I don't know about you, but on my own, my prayer life is repetitive. It's cliche. It's just the same thing over and over again in different ways, and it can feel powerless, and it can feel like a task. That's me on my own, and I know I'm not alone in that. And so the good news is that's not our only option. God has given us his word to inspire our prayer life. So listen here, pray through the Psalms. Wake up, wake up early in the morning, make yourself some strong coffee and just pray through the Psalms. It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be impressive. It just needs to be faithful. Pray through this. This last week, okay, my reading plan, I'm in 1 John. I'm praying through 1 John in the mornings. Incredible. His perfect love casts out all fear. Those who fear do not know the love of God. So I'm praying, God, assure my heart of your love for me. My life too often is, is marked by fear, fear of punishment, fear of consequence, fear of man. God, I want your love to just to, to be my bedrock. Holy Spirit, put that truth in my heart and press it down deeply. That's what prayer life is supposed to be, not on our own, but with God's scripture, with his word. And here's what's amazing, okay? What I'm learning is that prayer really is like the, the integration of everything in the Christian life. If we're not praying, then it's gonna all feel disconnected and we're gonna be powerless. But here's what's happening. You're living life and you're suffering. You're living life and it's hard and you're being tested and and. And certain things are being verified. Like, is God faithful? Is he worth it? It, um, Can you count the cost? Can you pick up your cross? Is it all worth it? Like, those things are being tested throughout your life. That's happening over here. And then you're reading God's word over here. You're, You're taking in his truth. Those things are meant to collide in our hearts and do something in us. Give us some stability. Give us some reassurance. Make it all real in, a, in an undeniable way. Do you know how Bible reading and life 
become, to come together and, and uh, become like deep in our bones, like a part of our DNA? Prayer. We take God's Word, and we take our life, and we think and talk with Him about these things, and the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us takes these things and makes them real. Listen, I'm telling you, your faithfulness as an exile, it's not going to be by how much you know. (laughs) It's not going to be by uh, how diligent you seem. It's going to be by doing the thing that nobody sees you doing. Alone, with God, in stillness, with His Word and prayer. So, the prayer of an exile first it's word-inspired, but secondly here, it's also sincerely humble. It's sincerely humble. Do you notice in verse uh, 3 or 4 that, that uh, Daniel says that he prayed in sackcloth and ashes, and he was fasting? Like, that's pretty serious. That's a pretty um, contrite person. All of those acts show a seriousness, a sobriety, a humility, a dependence, right? A desperation. So that's what Daniel's embodying, and I'm not going to read the whole entire prayer, but let me, let me just run down the list of the words he uses to describe him and his people, okay? Here's a running list of words that Daniel uses to describe himself and his people. He says four times that they have sinned. He says that they have done wrong, Twice they have acted wickedly. Twice they have rebelled. They have turned aside. He uses that twice. They have not listened. He says twice that open shame belongs to them. They have been treacherous. They have not obeyed. They have refused to obey, and they have transgressed. (laughs) And the point of me accounting for all those things is to tell you this. Daniel's not minimizing at all how bad things are. Daniel's not trying to uh, uh, um, shun any responsibility, deflect any responsibility. Where they're at, the consequences that they have, the situation they're in, they're responsible for, and he knows it. He's not minimizing at all their guilt. He's owning up to every single bit of it. But also, let me point out something else here. Daniel, he's praying for his sins. He mentions that once. But the majority of this prayer, you'll notice, is a prayer for not him only, but his people and also previous generations, the fathers before him. Daniel is confessing his sins, the sins of his father, and the sins of his community because, remember, the blessings and curses of the covenant were conditioned upon the faithfulness of who? The entire community. The entire community has failed. The entire community has sinned. The entire community has broken the law, so the entire community suffers the curses of covenant breaking. But I want to tell you this, okay? This should, be, this should be a category and a concept in our minds as we understand ourselves and how badly we need Jesus and how desperate we should be for God's help because we are not guilty only for our sins alone. I know that sounds strange. In this hyper-individualistic culture, we think that my problems are just because of me, but everyone else's problems and how things are going, that's their fault. They're so bad. They're so wicked, but that's not biblical. The whole biblical picture is that our sin affects others. Other sins affects us. We're all caught up in it together. We are held responsible not just for our decisions, but for the entire community, 
Okay, that's true underneath this specific covenant. But listen, if you want more biblical proof that this is just a universal human reality, Adam sinned and we inherited his guilt. So look, there's this dynamic relationship between the community and the representative and the representative in the community. And Daniel recognizes that and Daniel takes up then for his people. So listen, we have, we're, in, we're in a bad spot. This is how it is without God. This is how things drift. This is how things go. And Daniel knows it. Daniel recognizes and he's not trying to dismiss or minimizes any bit of it. So he holds nothing back. He accepts the fact that he and his people are totally helpless without God. I think the reason why we don't pray and our prayer life is often powerless and distracted or boring is because we don't share this same kind of humility. I'll be honest. <laughs> when I look at my life, when I look at my prayer life or the lack of it, I have to confess secretly, I must be pretty arrogant. You know, I, I grow concerned that I am secretly arrogant. I never would say it. I never would think it. But my prayerlessness, our prayerlessness, what does that communicate? What does that show? It thinks that we are, it must show that we are way too high on ourselves. That we think that we have it under control. That we think that we can handle it. That we think that we must not need God. See, a prayerless life means that I think I am capable of mastering life on my own, of fighting sin on my own, and serving God on my own, and helping others on my own. A prayerless life, it's a me-centered, me-driven, me-elevating life. And that's not going to help anybody. It's not going to bless anybody. And it's only going to be a burden to me. It's going to crush me and make me weary. So here's the truth. A prayerless life, it means that we're living in an illusion. See, when we don't pray, it shows that we think that we are in control. When we, pray, when we don't pray, it shows that we think productivity and being busy, it'll bring us more security and more happiness than God can bring us. When we don't pray, it shows that we think we're untouchable and somehow exempt from this great battle that is raging. Here's what one Chinese pastor says. I read this a few weeks ago. It just struck me. He says, Chinese Christians are praying for our brothers and sisters in America. We believe we are handling our persecution better than you are handling your prosperity. We are totally blinded to the reality that we are caught up in this great battle between good and evil because we live in such excess. And we're so distracted by all the things that, that can entertain us and that can stimulate us and that can preoccupy us. No wonder we don't pray because our life is just stuffed with things that sedate us and distract us. Essentially, we think we're in control. You know, we think that we can make ourselves happy. We think that we can somehow achieve and promise for ourselves security. <laughs> Sum it all up like this. When we don't pray, we are under the illusion that we are equal with God. Because only God can actually do any of that. Only He can bring security. Only He is in control. Only He can make us happy. Only He can cause us to triumph and be victorious. 
So we, and you might not say it, you and I might not confess it, we would never even think it, but what does our prayerless life show? What does it communicate that we think that we are as capable as God is? We misunderstand that the operating power, the operational power in our life is the Holy Spirit, not us. So you remember that story when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem? and he meets a blind beggar on the roadside in Jericho. And that blind beggar, he screams out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd say, hush, hush, be quiet. You're making a scene. It says he cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That should be us when we rise in the morning. All throughout the day, we are blind beggars who need the bread of life. And we should be crying out in desperation, God, I cannot do it on my own. One of the most terrifying verses in John 15 is, apart from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean you can't breathe and do and work and succeed. You certainly will do all those things, but God will not be glorified and you'll miss out on him. And so, we're exiles like Daniel. And we're not going to make it. We're not going to thrive. We're not going to be faithful or excellent in anything we do if we're not a people of prayer marked by sincere humility. Think about this. Jesus, God in flesh, would spend entire evenings alone in prayer with the Father. If God in flesh, leaning into his humanity, depended on the Spirit of God, to be faithful and to, and to persevere and to serve, how much more should we automatically collapse into God's presence in prayer, expressing our dire need for Him? And so I don't want to be, I don't want to be secretly arrogant. I don't want to be accidentally arrogant. I want to own up to everything. I want us to own up to everything and <laughs> communicate to God, we need you or else it all comes apart. This is the prayer of an exile. It's humble. It's word-shaped. But here's what's surprising, too. It's, it's boldly confident, too. Let's read this, okay? Go to verse 13. It says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Look at that. He says, this calamity is right, but we have not yet entreated the favor of the Lord. That word favor, okay, that word favor, that's a reference to God's unforeseen, committed choice. That's, that's, that's God's like placed, selective love upon a person, that says, no matter what, I am yours, I am with you, I work out all things for your good. Daniel says, we have not summoned that yet. We have not approached God and asked God to act according to that yet. See, God is gracious. And Daniel says in verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done. God owes us nothing. God owes these people nothing. Yet, Daniel's praying, God, Give us your favor. What is the basis for such a confidence? 
What is the basis for his boldness to ask this God, who they have committed treachery against and turned their back on for generations long, what gives Daniel the guts to approach this God and summon his favor? Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. The word mercy, it, it's a loaded word, and it has connotations of compassion. Like, like literally, a father's aroused love for his kid. His compassionate, tender love for his child. That's what it says. In verse 18, he says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. What's the basis for such confidence? God is scandalously merciful. That God's heart, it's a father's heart. You get that? A father's heart who is easily tendered towards his kids. What else? Verses 8 and 13, I'm not going to read them, but Daniel calls God capital O, capital R, capital R, O-R-D. I might misspelled that. You'll forgive me. Okay. Most of it, most of the passage, it's just normal Lord, which means ruler, master. But a number of times he calls God Yahweh. It's God's self-disclosure. That name originates in this, in this interaction with Moses, where Moses says, how can I know that you're going to be committed to such a faithless, idolatrous, fickle people? And God says, well, my name is Yahweh. That's why. L-O-R-D. And he expounds what this means. He defines what his name is, and here's what it is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who our God is. He's committed. He stays. He pledges. And not begrudgingly, not frustrated at all, because he abounds in this kind of love. He has more than enough love to give. So what gives Daniel, the basis to approach God and ask for favor, it's his father's heart. It's God's own commitment, his own pledge to his people. And then what else? This is really interesting. It's his own reputation. Daniel asks God to move and end this exile and restore his people to their land because he's concerned about God's reputation. And as I read this prayer, notice how the fate of Daniel and the fate of the people of Israel are so intertwined with the reputation of God, as if their fate has direct consequence to what people are going to say and think about God. Verses 15 through 19. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. 
For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You'll notice two things are happening in that prayer. He says over and over repeatedly, I am yours, and these are your people. As if to say, what's happening to us and what people see has a direct effect consequence upon you because we are so wrapped up and integrated with you, God. Please show mercy because your your reputation is at stake. And he says, don't do it for our sake, but for your sake, not for our name, but for your name. See, Daniel, here's what this means, baseline. I want to be very forward. (laughs) Daniel wants God to look great. Daniel wants God to be unquestionably glorious. Daniel wants God to just be exalted and supreme. He wants him and his people to be experience this deliverance, deliverance and be restored to this land so that God is held in high esteem. This is all throughout our Bibles. People pray like this all throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 79, it says this, do not, remember, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. After all, why should the nation say, where is their God? See, the psalmist is concerned about God's reputation. Daniel's concerned about God's reputation. Even Moses, when he mediates and prays for the people, he says, God, what's Egypt going to say? You just delivered them. And if you, if you disown them now, what are they going to say? What are the nations going to say? All throughout the Bible, God's people, exiles, take up and pray in this way, asking God to move, not for our sake, not because we deserve it, not because we're impressive at all in the least, but for his name's sake and for his reputation. And so we, what's the confidence of prayer? Why do we summon his favor? Father's heart is scandalous, unconditional commitment, and because we want God to be glorious, and he wants to be glorious. He agrees with that prayer. He's happy to answer that prayer. Now, someone said it, okay, moved on, but we have something that Daniel greeted from afar but had not experienced himself. We here actually have one singular reason to approach God confidently, knowing that we're wretched, knowing that we're sinful, knowing that we're not faithful. We have reason to boldly approach and entreat for God's favor on the basis of one thing, one person, one name, Christ. Hebrews 4 says, approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in your time of need. Why? Because we have a faithful high priest who has gone before us. Listen, here's what's incredible. Okay, this story I told, Adam was the son of God. He failed. And what happened? Alienated, exiled. Israel was called a son of God. They did not keep the law, and so they were exiled. The kings of Israel were not faithful, and so Israel was exiled. The whole story of the Old Testament is crying out and anticipating for a true son, a second Adam, 
a true and better Israel? Will there be a son of God who emerges, who finally keeps the covenant, who, who inherits and guarantees and is entitled to all the blessings of the covenant without any of the curses? Jesus comes and says that he is the son of God. From, remember when Jesus is baptized? He says, God shouts from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so listen, when Jesus, who lived sinlessly and kept the entire law perfectly, his, his entire life, when he dies in our place on the cross, do you know what he's doing there? He's experiencing the ultimate exile. He's experiencing the ultimate alienation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's our alienation. That's our cursing of the law that we deserve for our disobedience. But he absorbs it all. It gets better. Not only does he absorb the curses of our disobedience, but he transfers to us the blessings of his obedience. And so now under this new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated by his blood, do you know what it means? We're disobedient, certainly. On our own merit, I don't approach God boldly, but I'm seen. This is scandalous, but hear me out. This is the gospel. I am seen and you are seen. For those of us who have called upon Jesus to be our Savior, we are seen as no different than the very righteousness of Jesus. That's been credited to our account. Why does Jesus tell us to pray in his name? He tells his disciples, before you haven't been able to, but now I want you to pray in my name. Why do we do that? It's a reminder to us and a reminder to God, I'm approaching you, God, and asking for these things, not because of my name, not on the basis of my name, but on the basis of the one who's at your very right hand. Sinless, spotless, risen, king. He is my righteousness. He is my blamelessness. Look at him, not me. Reckon to me his righteousness. And that's what he has done. So look, citizens, we have inherited all the blessings of the old covenant. We have inherited it all. And, and Jesus has absorbed all the curses and so truly, perfect love casts out all fear. Truly, we can approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace when we need it and not shrink back. And so listen, I don't know what your last week has been. <laughs> I don't know what the last months have been. But what the enemy wants us to think is this. I haven't read my Bible enough. I'm too dirty. I've, I've messed up. I have too many regrets. I, I, can, I need to like, put off prayer for a little bit and get some things right. I need to put off time, presence with God until I clean myself up a little bit and be and just more, and more presentable, and, and that way I'll feel more confident. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you are now a son of God. This Romans chapter 8 says our, our, the spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father, with words we can't express. We are co-heirs now. We are sons of God just like Jesus is because of him. He has given us that identity. So we approach now and pray with bold confidence on the basis of God's favor, which ultimately is realized in Jesus. So the prayer of an exile, word-inspired, word-shaped, humble, and confident. But lastly, it's answered. It's answered. God answers the prayer of exiles. When done in this way, God wants to answer prayer. So listen, verses 20 through 23. Look what it says. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifices. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. 
At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So immediately, God sends an angel named Gabriel to give Daniel the answer to his plea, which we will unpack next week. That's for next week. But the point is, God answers prayer. He does. It's not meaningless. It's not just like uh, arbitrary practice that the Bible tells us to do. There's actually a power and a movement that happens in prayer. God answers prayer. But listen, how does this apply to us? How should we understand this to work in our lives? Because first, some of you might think to yourself, my prayers are not getting answered. (laughs) My prayers don't get answered. So what in the world? What, 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 what in the world? My first response would be this. Well, are you praying this way? Are you praying this way? This is deep prayer. Are you praying this way? Because this, this is a model of prayer that does not guarantee that you get what you want. This is a model of prayer that guarantees that you get what God wants for you. So if your heart is shaped by God's word, and if you're humble, you're asking God to act according to his great name, you'll not be asking for vain, selfish, superficial, wrong things. And if you don't practice this, you just prayer, if you just pray just um, without these, these guardrails in place. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our hearts are wicked above all things. Who can trust it? You think you're praying maybe virtuous things, but if Scripture is not shaping your prayer, if you're not humble, if you don't get the gospel, if the gospel's not integrated into your prayer life, you're more than likely praying for very selfish things and expecting God to give you those things and you hold it against Him when He doesn't do it for you. God's protecting you. God's protecting you from yourself. And so this is what Jesus teaches exactly in John 15, 7. Look at this. He says, if you abide in me. Okay? If you abide in me, what does that sound like? Word. If you're deep in relationship with me and my words abide in you, (laughs) ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look here. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, answered prayer, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is simply repeating what Daniel's been modeling. Word, guarded, shaped, inspired prayer that's humble yet confident because we're in Christ. God wants to answer that prayer and give you what he wants to give you. And if this isn't the case, okay, like I said, it's not safe to give you what you want until you enter into this process. Truly, it's not safe to give you what you want until first you truly pray like this. Because what God's going to do as you pray, he's, he's going to shape, reshape, reconfigure your heart to match his. And then God's going to give you what he wills to give you because it's already his will. Second, some of you think, I can't do this because <laughs> uh, this is hard. And I'll never have answered prayer then. God wants to answer prayer. Well, I'll never have answered prayer because I can't do this. I have really good news. In verse 23, it says, Gabriel tells Daniel, this answer's coming to you. Why? He says, for you are greatly loved. The word there is, is actually like treasured or cherished. Think about that. 
The God who breathed stars into existence, the God who holds history in his hands, the God who is supreme above all things and who is blameless and glorious and mighty on and on, considers you, is concerned for you more, actually, treasures you, values you. You don't need to be perfect, and we're not going to get it right. I can guarantee you, but that's okay. God still, in his grace, gives us what he wants to give us, give us because he loves us. Look, Daniel, confessing his sin and the sins of his people, why does God answer? We went through that. But don't forget, it's because God loves and treasures. And so some of you think, I never had prayer answered. Well, are you praying like this? Some of you think, I'll never have it answered. Well, it's okay. God loves you. He'll take care of you. In his timing and in his way, he'll give you what he wants for you. So listen, we are exiles. We are. In the time of our exile, we'll either be regrettable, full of regrets, or it'll be remarkable, and it will all depend on our prayer life, personally and corporately. We are to be people of prayer. So I hope you're excited to pray. I hope what, what's going on in you is like a spark. Uh, uh, you've been energized to like want to begin praying and have a powerful, meaningful prayer life. I hope that's what's happening in your heart right now. But that's not my job. My job is not to inspire you. That's God's job. He does that. He takes care of that. My job is to charge you, to admonish you. So that, that feeling, that emotion, that inspiration, it needs to become a step of obedience. It, ne- it needs to be acted upon. So here's what we're going to do. We really believe this. We really believe that God wants to give us what he wills for us, but he wants us to pray. And so here's what we're going to do. This week, no small group. We're going to meet here Wednesday night and pray. Impromptu prayer meeting. We have them every quarter, but I think it would be appropriate if we gathered together. Everyone's invited to come pray together Wednesday night at 7 o'clock and seek the face of God and ask for what he wants to give us. That's what we're going to do, okay? This is a step of obedience, so I hope, you see, hope to see you Wednesday night. Um, I hope beyond that that you can reserve space in your life for this kind of prayer, for prayer that moves you, changes you, and you see God move in your life in and through you. Let's pray. God, we do depend upon you. And apart from you, we can't do nothing. And so you've asked for us to abide in you and have your words abide in us and ask anything in your name and it'll be given to us so that you might be glorified and we bear much fruit and prove to be your disciples. So God, we ask that you change us. First and foremost, that you do this transformative work in us to make us more like Jesus. Beyond anything, God, that's what's most important. Beyond anything, that's what we want, to be more like your son, the way he lived the way he loved, the way he obeyed, the way he served, the way he suffered, the way he died, majestic, all of it. God, we want to be like that. So I pray that you would cultivate that in us by your spirit. Make us more like your son. And God, do whatever it takes to do that. That's a scary thing to say, but God, I pray that you would give us the heart to join you in what you're doing in our life. We experience loss and disappointment and hardship God, you're using those things to make us more like Jesus. I pray that we would accept them and not complain. God, good things in our life, 
these good things that are happening, I pray, God, that we would celebrate them and see you in them and not be so wrapped up with the gift, but be consumed by the giver of the gift. God, I pray that you would move through this church, that you would save many, that you would do something powerful here. But God, even beyond this church, these four walls, I pray that you would do a great movement in our county, in our state, and in our globe. And God, you already are on the move. We recognize that and praise your name for that, that you're already doing something incredible for your name's sake and for your people's good. But we ask God that you would let us see it more. You say in 2 Timothy that, that the harvester, when he works hard, he gets the first share of the crops. And God, we want to reap a harvest and we want to see it with our own eyes. Would you do that for us, God? Would you be amongst us and move here and do something incredible and let us see it? God, we want to be faithful exiles. Be with us. Carry us. Help us to live victoriously. Help us to be holy as you are holy. And God, draw us into prayer that we might commune with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.